0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think
1: there is a trap in uh, these tools, and a lot of the digital tools make it very easy to link between notes and to connect them. And it's fun to do, but. If you don't think through the connection and make it explicit, and like your suggestion, to not just put a link to another note, but to embed the link in a full sentence makes all the difference. Because instead of saying, well, there is something else that is somehow related to this, you justify it by explaining to yourself Well, but on the other note, there is a contradicting information and that triggers the question, well, is the empirical data wrong or is um, that a different perspective? And now you have to really engage in the questions and it also produces a lot of questions. And I think that's kind of the beauty of, um this forced elaboration that comes with it that you constantly come up with new questions
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Saka, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, I found out about your work, uh, to be honest, I have no idea how I stumbled up on this lecture you did about the Zettelkasten method and Nicholas Lumen, and uh, then I found your book How to Take Smart Notes. And my dad being a college professor, when I saw the idea that somebody finished a PhD in a year, I thought, wait a minute, what the hell? I've. 58 books, 500 papers. I'm a writer and I have a dad as a college professor. I have to find out more about this. And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing how transformative these ideas have been. So, on that note, I was just asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, So, there's no obvious answer because both of my parents don't have an academic background at all. So, my Mom was a social worker my dad was in the administration in
0: uh
2: my home city hamburg and in a way, I think it puts you on a um
1: in a weird place because um you have to figure a lot out on your own and I think my interest in how to take notes is one of the things I really needed to figure out on my own because there was no role model. And sometimes that can be incredibly helpful um, because you don't just take on something um, that's done for generations, but you question some of the fundamentals. And I think uh, note-taking is certainly one of the fundamental skills um, you can have uh, in learning and teaching and academia Mm -hmm. and beyond. Um, But what my parents always um,
2: passed on to me is that it's never a waste of time to read a book
1: and it's never a waste of money to buy books. So one thing that was absolutely clear is um, I can read as much as I like.
2: And I think that's um, an enormous gift you can give your children. Yeah. Did your parents
0: encourage you to pursue any particular career paths or any particular fields? Because I mean, I, you know, I deleted this on the show before. Like, you know, you grow up in an Indian family. The narrative is doctor, lawyer, sure. and those are your paths to a good life. I think think they would have preferred uh,
1: <laughs> me becoming a medical doctor, um, but I weren't particularly happy about my choice of pedagogy. And I think philosophy of education is something they don't really know what it is all about. Like um, most people, me included, most of the time. Um, but. No, there was no particular path they had in mind, but very encouraging to go to university and to study. Um, That's for sure.
3: Eh.
0: Well, let's, let's talk specifically about uh, education, you know, because you you were in the talk that you gave, which we'll, we'll link up for people listening. You talked about the sort of current state of higher education, uh, and it, it just made me rethink you. Know, this is something that I ask all people who are academics when I have them on the show. Uh, if you were tasked with redesigning the education system from the ground up, uh, particularly here in the United States, where we're riddling students with student loan debt, they're coming out with their relevant skills, um, and often people are just memorizing and regurgitating, what would you change about it, and how would you redesign it? That's
2: quite a big question. Um... I think, yeah, I I realize we could do four episodes on that alone. (laughs) Um, Well, I think the um, application
1: of knowledge, being playful with the information you get and doing something with it, um, is certainly one of the key skills that's often missing. Um,
2: And I think technology can help to a certain degree, um, and in many ways, I don't know where to start. <laughs> um,
1: so, starting from the choice of uh, topics that are teach,ed then um, the way it's taught,
2: um, and I think. Encouraging thinking thoroughly uh, and being playful with um,
1: the information you have is um, probably one of the keys to it. So it's not very original to um, see Richard Feynman as one of the role models on um, bringing life to, to information. So I think there is a reason he was also not just a great scientist, but also a great teacher. I think that goes hand in hand in some regards.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, as, as we we're talking about for here, court here, uh, you know, my roommate, bad, you know, asked me, he's like, oh, you're a straight A student in high school. I was like, of course, if I was a straight A student in high school, I'm Indian. Like, you know, my parents would have disowned me if I wasn't a straight A student in school. Uh, but the funny thing is that you realize that you, you know, you get to colleges we we're talking about, and the way you're taught to learn in high school does not serve you very well at all. Um, In fact, it doesn't work. Even if you were a straight A student in high school, usually everything that got you to a place like Berkeley usually is, you know, completely useless. And I wonder, you know, one, why we have, you know, perpetuated this sort of linear thinking, you know, factory model of education long after the Industrial Revolution is over. And also... Um, I'm curious about the contrast. Uh, you know, I, I know that you, you know, being in Germany, you may not have a uh, perspective on this, but I'm guessing you've interacted with, you know, students from America and, and you know, academics from America. What have you noticed as, as differences, uh, you know, in the way that we're sort of educated and socialized in education systems in Germany versus the United States?
1: Um, I think the differences between universities within uh, the United States are much, much greater than between United States and Germany. Um, I think Germany is probably a little bit more, um, homogeneous, uh, not vastly different, uh, between universities in Germany, but all in all, <laughs> more, uh, um, on the middle ground. Um, I experienced two different systems, because with the Bologna reform in Europe, it became much more modular and much more siloed. Um, so I studied under the old system, which came with a lot more freedom. And there is obviously an upside to that. Um, I felt very little restriction on um what i can do and all the grades and examinations were more or less um uh, a second thought um that changed after the bologna reform so now the students i encounter um when i teach are much more focused on um the next exam getting the credit point um feeling much less um, free in choosing what they learn. Uh, um, and you can see it in the statistics as well. So one of the big reasons for the reform was to encourage uh, traveling uh, within Europe, changing universities. And that actually went down a lot. Um, so that more or less backfired. Um, so I think the differences I experienced be- before and after the reform is probably much greater than between the average uh, American university and the average um, German university. But I grew up with um, a lot of freedom. Uh.
4: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
1: That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
3: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
5: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off.
4: Bluenile.com code LISTEN. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate thing here in the United States, in a lot of ways, from what I've heard from talking
0: to, you know, primary teachers, is that they're forced, unfortunately, to teach the test, right? And we groom, you know, future bankers, lawyers, and, you know, uh, doctors uh, by, you know, having these standardized tests. And that's this huge source of stress. And that often is what drives people to learn because there are a lot of people I found who think that they don't enjoy reading primarily because they never got to choose the books they read. And that's pretty common in high school. I can't tell you a damn thing about most of the books that I read in high school. And probably because I wasn't taught to look at them the way that you teach people, look at them. So what's the key to sort of breaking this conditioning, uh, you know, on a much larger scale? Because I think that to me, it seems like, you know, these sort of anomaly weirdos like me and people like Tiago Forte stumble on your work and we're thinking, wow, this is the way everybody should do this. And of course, trying to convert them, you know, we sound like you know, ridiculous, you know, religious evangelists trying to basically convert people to a new religion, which I kind of feel like we are.
2: Yeah. Well, um again, that's a big question. And I
1: feel there's no simple answer because um at the moment I teach at a university where a lot of students uh do not have an academic background um, and they look for guidance on how does it work here? <laughs> how does university work? How does um, studying work? And I I think we should give them uh, guidance so that those students who have parents with an academic background don't have all the advantages, and um, we pretend there's this big freedom, but it's more about figuring out the implicit rules of it. That's the one side of it. And the other side is, well, um, how can we encourage them and um, to study more, uh, freely, um, following their own interest, building up some structure themselves and maybe also to collaborate more. Um, there is a lack of collaboration I see at the moment, which is also, of course, COVID related. Um, so there are these two sides. Um, how, how can we give them the security of some kind of structure? And on the other hand, encourage them to use the freedom they have to follow their interest and to search the knowledge they need to answer certain questions, um, regardless of where the uh, information comes from. Um, And unfortunately, the structure uh, we provide is um, quite narrowing and is more or less, the administrative structure. Um, So maybe because of a lack of structure in the skills like note-taking and how to write, how to keep track of your ideas, notes, how to develop them, maybe because we don't teach enough the structure on that level, they um, look for structure somewhere else. And that is the structure um built by administrators. He look for, okay, how can we combine credit points in our system? And how can we differentiate between the seminars and lectures um, they have to attend and cross uh, the checklist. Um so maybe it's not so much about more or less structure, but um giving the right structure um that enables
2: freedom on the content level. Um, yeah, I think probably the enormous
1: influence of the administration is
2: one of the key problems in uh, reforming higher education. You know, I... Uh... It's funny you say that because one thing I I learned after writing a couple of books, I went
0: back and thought about the way that I was taught to write in high school versus the way that I was taught to write a book. Uh, And I've said, you know, there's a reason there's no such thing as the Great American Five Paragraph Essays. Uh, Because in school, you're taught to write in order to get a grade, not to be read. And of course, you know, and to your point, you follow this this sort of linear structure in which you, you know, have this hypothesis, the thesis statement and the conclusion. And then you're like, this is mind numbing. Why would anybody want to read this? Right. Uh, so it, I, I think that makes a perfect segue into actually talking about the entire process of note taking and smart notes and um how different it is than anything else that we seem to. What I'm curious about is, is how in the world did you stumble upon this and, and you know, how is it that?
2: Something that's sixty plus years old got buried um and never you know came to the surface until you wrote this book um I always felt the need for a better system, and
1: I always blamed myself of not being rigorous enough of um going through the books and the highlights I made again and again and um I spent a lot of time searching for quotes I vaguely have in mind, and I know they would be fitting, but can't remember where I wrote them down. And that certainly because I um, was very unstructured in my studies. So I was very curious about the neighboring disciplines and went to lectures far off the Beaten track of my discipline. And so I gathered a lot of information from different places. So it was a setup that made the need for a better system obvious uh, because the usual system I used as a young student, just collecting everything um, I heard in. One seminar or a lecture and then put it away together with other seminars from the same year uh, didn't really work. And then I became very much interested in Niklas Luhmann's theory of social systems. So that started with an interest in his work, not in his writing technique. That was more or less um, an anecdote. Um, people, uh, in the field mentioned once in a while that there is this strange settle custom somewhere in the, his house. And, um, it was more a curiosity, not something to be taken very seriously. And I think the theory of social system in itself kind of prepare you
2: <laughs>
1: to detect the superiority of the system, because it's all about building up complexity and finding ways to reduce that complexity. And it's about the evolution of ideas. It's about how insight can emerge out of chaos and so there is a lot in the theory itself that is mirrored in the system. And I think when I realized that um there might be more to the system than just um a curious way of taking notes. Um it kind of fell into place. Um so it made sense and it also made sense because at this time I read a little bit more about um new insights from uh, learning theories and um seeing learning not so much as storing information, but retrieving information that uh, the key mm-hmm. to understand learning is really to understand what forgetting is and what it means to be able to retrieve information, um, when it's necessary and how to inhibit information when you don't need it. So I think in creative process, often you have this kind of chance that two or three things suddenly, um, come in contact with each other and, um, out of that some kind of insight is born and then it certainly started with me trying to explain to myself (laughs) that why is it so fascinating to me why does it work how did he actually work with that and then it became more um but what's interesting for me is, in hindsight, how many parallels there are between the process of um, discovering um the importance of the note-taking system and how it's at the same time an example of the very note-taking system itself and the parallels to the theory. And I think just describing it, um, wouldn't really convince anyone. I think, um, yeah, it becomes more convincing because you understand the principles and ideas behind it. And, um, that's also what makes it fun because it has it, this path of discovery that comes with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, no, it, it's funny because I, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about this. I was like, how the hell do we, you know, justify and explain this to people considering that it doesn't make a lot of sense until you see it and you put it into action yourself. Um, but you know, one of the, the things that you talk about is the importance of workflow. And you said it, you know, I, this really struck me. So that workflow is one of the greatest predictors of academic success. And I thought that was so true for, you know, professional success as well. And then you wanted to say the challenge is to structure one's workflow in a way that insight and new ideas become the driving forces that push us forward. We do not want to make ourselves dependent on a plan that is threatened by the unexpected, like a new idea, discovery, or insight. And I I remember very distinctly that you say in the lecture that you gave that, um you know, insight isn't something that you plan for. So this linear you know, sort of bottom, or top-down approach it doesn't make any sense because insight is something that happens spontaneously. It took a while for me to really comprehend that. Um, can, you, can you expand on what you've mean by that? And then we'll get kind of into some of the tactical pieces of this.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm actually not sure if I mentioned that in the book, but um, one of the authors that um, really helped me understanding the limitations of planning is um, a French scholar, sinologist called François Julien, who wrote on the differences between Western thinking and um, traditional Chinese thinking. And he describes, what he is trying to do is not describing how Chinese thinking works, but using the detour uh, of another old written uh, philosophy tradition to gain some outside perspective on what we take for granted and to distance ourselves a little bit from um, our way of thinking. And one of the key elements of Western
2: thinking is this difference between um planning and execution. And that made a lot of sense to me because y- there's a lot you can
1: achieve with planning and execution. But when it comes to insight or something where other people and chance plays a big role, um planning can get you only so far. Um, so he talks a lot of about examples, for example, um, in war strategy, um, where there's a lot of planning going on up until you encounter the enemy and then everything falls apart. Pedagogy is certainly similar, that you can do as much planning as you like. But when uh, the first pupil says something very strangely, you have to, you have to, React to that and insight is really something that needs a different
2: approach to planning. And what I find really, really
1: strange is that all these manuals for students on how to write a thesis, um, how to write a book, um, Follow this linear approach where you have to start with your goal, um, where you want to end up to. And then you start doing your research and then you start reading and then you come to a conclusion. And that was very strange to me because I knew from experience uh, that might be because I never And properly learned how to do research, that I started by amassing a lot of information in the area that was of interest to me, up until the point something popped out as interesting. And as I was um, doing a lot of research on um, how to gain insight, um, I realized that a lot of the empirical studies on how in the laboratory uh, insight is generated very much resemble this intuitive process I followed by gathering a lot of information and then um, putting it somehow together and um, trying to figure out um, what's, what the key issues are and letting in a way chance to help. Letting it fall into place, uh, that this is much more adequate and you need to translate it into a workflow that, um, allows you to build up some kind of critical mass of solid information, uh, something that you believe is true. And you don't start necessarily with. Everything I believe is untrue and what I want to disprove, but let's start with what we think is really true. And then we get to the point, um maybe, where we detect what's missing. And detecting what's missing requires a lot of information, because you don't see what's missing if you only have a hypothesis. And... um um, little information. So trying to get to a full picture first and then reaching the boundaries of your understanding. I think that is, um, the approach I was trying to find a practical uh, solution for.
2: Uh, you know, it,
0: it's funny because uh, I think, you know, to your point earlier, uh, you know, for people listening to this, they might be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do with this? But tell them about Lumen's productivity and then we'll actually get into the the system itself. Because like, like I said, the minute I read that, I was immediately intrigued and I said, OK, I have to know how to do this. Sure. So um, I think
1: the uh, one of the key um, elements is that you have a strong filter process and uh, distinguish between different types of notes um so this kind of notes which are more a uh, reminder of what you have in your head and i think we all know these kind of notes we jot them down quickly and after a few days um a few hours for me <laughs> I don't really understand anymore what I meant with that, or it kind of loses the significance. So writing notes in a way that they can be understood by someone else or by yourself in a year's time or a month's time requires obviously a little bit more effort because you have to give some context and ideally um, write it down in whole sentences. as it requires more um effort you need to be very selective um with what you write down permanently and i think this distinction between is it really worth writing it down um deliberately is something we don't necessarily do if we don't have a place where to put it afterwards. Uh, because if it gets lost, um it it's a whole lot of effort um that's wasted. So it's very selective with what we write down um deliberately. And then putting it all in one place to build up a critical mass of um ideas we spend some time Thinking them through.
2: And then it's all about um, going through a bottom up process of seeing which information
1: can connect with another information. How can I categorize it? Um, Can I build some categories bottom up instead of starting with a structure? We fit everything into. And that is probably what we usually um, learn in school that we get a structure and then add information into that. So here it's the other way around. We um, collect everything in one place and then see what kind of categories make sense. And thinking about categories, thinking about how does information A um, and information B, um, have in common, um, triggers, um, thinking. It kind of pushes us to think things through and, um, Lumen, um, use pen and paper and just edit new pieces of, um, notes behind relevant um, notes where the new information can be connected to. And that is, even when we work with digital tools, the same principle. When we add new information to the system, we first look, okay, where might that fit to? And by looking at what we have written before, we have to make decisions on how to connect it. So if I want to add the new piece of information to some existing one, I need to justify to myself, is this a contradiction to it? Is it uh, an addition? Is it expanding on an idea? Uh, And ideally, I write the new note in dialogue with the existing one. So yeah, I, can, I, can I stop you for a second on
0: that?
2: Yeah. Sure. yeah.
0: So that that's one of those things that um, I think is vitally important because I think when people first discover this concept of bidirectional links, because I remember the first formatted version I saw of a Zettelkasten note, it, you know, had the thing with related notes underneath. But to your point, I said, you know, you really, if you have bidirectional links, you should be using them to complete sentences. Like you should be writing sentences in a new note with, you know, like the titles of other notes. Is that what you mean by that? Yes, yes. I think, I think that there is a trap in uh,
1: uh, these tools, and uh, a lot of the digital tools make it very easy to link between nodes and to connect them, and it's fun to do. But if you don't think through the connection and make it explicit, um, and like your suggestion, to not just put a link to another note, but to embed the link in a full sentence um, makes all the difference because instead of saying, well, there is something else that is somehow related to this, you justify it by explaining to yourself, well, but on the other note, um, there is a contradicting information." And that triggers the question, well, um, is the empirical data wrong or is um, that a different perspective? And now you have to really engage in the questions. And it also produces a lot of questions. And I think that's kind of the beauty of um, this forced elaboration that comes with it, that you constantly come up with new questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I noticed the amount, I I mean, what I said was this was literally the key to never experiencing writer's block again, because I noticed this, you know, the the first thing that didn't click for me was permanent notes. But when I started literature notes, I noticed I would come up with these just ideas and I would create a link to the, you know, node. And suddenly I would look through the database, was like, well, I have no shortage of things I could write about today.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: and I, I think when
1: students are faced with their first papers or have to write a thesis, they often struggle, especially in the beginning, with finding good questions and um, what's a topic. And they ask you to provide them with a topic they can write about. And I think that's um because... They have written their notes in a particular way where uh, one piece of information was just added without
2: connecting it to something else. And that doesn't lead to any questions. Um, but then
1: you have an abundance of things to write about, and you have to make a, des- a decision on what's the most pressing question here and um, what do I want to. Um, follow up on. And that's sometimes hard for me um, to deal with the abundance of possibilities because you constantly have to make decisions on what not to follow up on. Um, It kind of makes the limitations of time and attention quite obvious.
0: Yeah let's talk about uh, tags in particular, because I, this is something that I, th- I think really has been, you know, the main piece of existence is they don't know how to find anything. And this is something you say that really struck me. And it took me a while for, for this to click. You say the way that people choose their keywords shows clearly if they think like an archivist or a writer, do they wonder where to store a note or how to retrieve it? The archivist asks, which keyword is the most fitting? A writer asks, in which circumstances will I want to stumble up on this note? Even if I forget about it, it's a crucial difference. Keywords should always be assigned with an eye towards the topics you're working on or interested in, never by looking at a note in isolation. And yeah. what I realized when I thought I saw that, I said, you know, people, it's like, oh, do I tag my notes by topic? And, and Tiago Forte wrote a fantastic article about this where he talks about contextual tagging. And I realized why that was so important, because topics are infinite. There's just no end to, to it, Um, with how, you know, when we think about tags in particular as an organizational mechanism in, you know, uh, reference to what you say specifically that keywords, how you think about
2: this? Like, how, what is the right way to do this? So that things and, you know, we are able to retrieve things. Yeah. I, I think there is, there, there is an abundance of
1: tools that help you with storing information. Um, the offline readers, uh, insta paper, a uh, Pocket, um, read wise, etc., they all help you to get information into your system. And you can add tags to somehow make it easier to find them again. But that doesn't really require cognitive effort. And the moment you have to connect it with existing knowledge or put it in the place you think you will need it. Um, you suddenly feel, um, the need to put effort into it. And I think effort is a good indicator if you're doing it right or wrong. If it doesn't feel like you need effort, you
0: probably do it wrong. Yeah. I, that was one of the first comments I got from a YouTube video I made about this. Somebody else said, "This seems like a lot of effort," and I said, "Yes, <laughs> the, the payoff, the pay, it is, but the payoff—the payoff—it is. I mean, but the funny thing is, it—it's like you know, compound interest. It—it it, when it finally pays
2: off, it pays off big. Yeah, and
1: and you can look at it from the other side, and the other side is the perspective of the writer. So, does my action now? <laughs> Bring a publication closer to the finish line, and it does it when I add in my manuscript a new paragraph. It does it when I link from the um, uh from the notes I collect for a manuscript another note, which is meaningful and um adds to the rough draft I'm outlining. But if I tack an article and collect it, read it, find it interesting and do nothing else with it, it doesn't add anything to the uh, project I'm supposed to work on. So I think it's very much an illusion of putting less effort into it because You do put less effort into it, but you also put no effort into um, getting closer to the finish line. Um, So, if you spend a lot of time collecting articles from the internet, tagging them, and none of that brings you closer to a finished manuscript um, or insight
2: or whatever um, your goal is, then it's not more efficient, it's less efficient. And yeah, it's really about, okay, thinking, how
1: does what I read contribute to my understanding of something I decided deliberately to work on? And that helps you also to um improve the filters um you use to make a decision on what to read and what to
0: dive into and et cetera. Uh, wait. Yeah I think for me the, the other reason this had intrigued me so much was that you know I always jokingly said if I could take all the ideas from the books I've read and the people that I've interviewed on this show I'd be a billionaire with six packs abs and a harem of supermodels and I'm none of those things. So, you know, but the the real thing that intrigued me was I said, you know, I have this encyclopedia of just information in my head from a thousand interviews. How do I access it in a way that's useful? And what I started to see was that if I did, you know, followed this process for, you know, the books I read, not only did I get more from each book that I read, um, but it gave me tons of original ideas. And uh, the workflow, I think, is one of those things that, um, like you say, you know, people almost have to see it in action. Uh, it took me creating a course about this before it all connected. And when I got to the final module, I thought, wait a minute, I just wrote a 10,000-word article and laid the foundation for it in 10 minutes. Right. We'll wrap this up with like a very concrete example. So let's just say somebody is reading a book, maybe your book. You know, step by step, can you walk us through what they should be doing versus what they probably been doing?
1: Actually, I wouldn't start with reading. Um, I okay. know um, I started with reading in the book, but I... Um, now noticed from feedback and also coaching a lot of people that I might have overemphasized the, um, process of taking information into this system and, um, the bottom up approach of building structure out of a critical mass, which is, um, certainly the big difference to, the usual way of taking notes. But equally important is to acknowledge that we never start from scratch. We always already have some kind of structure in our head. So what I really would recommend to do when you set up your system in the beginning is to write down what are the topics you think about And you want to continue to work on. And how would you structure that? So um, I have a page where I have an overview of everything I'm working on, thinking about. And that is a kind of skeleton where I can then add new pieces of information to. But it's not hardwired into the system so it will evolve over time um i will drop topics i will change uh, questions and uh, build subcategories or um, get rid of them but i think it's a really good idea to um make kind of a brain dump and start with okay what do i already know um Because I'm not starting um, from scratch. And then when you decide to read a book or an article, um, you already have some kind of filter. And you can be more explicit about the filter. So um,
2: a lot of things are interesting. Uh, um, Not everything is worth writing down. But... Some of the things are um, relevant for
1: a current project and some of the things you notice are really good to know and keep in mind, even though you don't know yet for what kind of project that might be helpful. And then it's worth writing them down um, either in a literature note where you first start um, giving you yourself an overview over everything that's interesting in the paper you're reading. Or you skip this step and already know, okay, that triggers an idea I want to write down in my permanent note section and write an individual note with a backlink to the source where it comes from. So that's the ideal bit that you get some insight you already know how it um um helps you answering a question or bring something forward you're thinking about write it down put it in that place and then link back to the original source but how many in between steps you need to get to the point that you know what you get out of it it really depends on on what you're reading and i think Having a flexibility in reading is much more important than having a rigorous um, method or workflow you apply to all kinds of text. And that's, I think, a common mistake in the beginning because you naturally look for the right way of doing it. But to be Mm -hmm. honest, I sometimes read a book and it's fun, but um, I don't take any notes. Because the only note I take is in the end. Okay, Uh, there was one interesting point and I don't um, make the effort of making a literature note and then extract it and then put it in permanent notes. I just write it directly where I need it. And sometimes I struggle to understand um, a text and need more than one go. And then it's a good idea to start with the classic way of highlighting sentences and postpone
2: writing things down. Um, it doesn't, um, uh, it's, it doesn't mean you
1: don't have to take notes because you have highlighted it, but it can be a good step in between. So when I'm new to a topic, um, I sometimes need to read the whole bit to understand the relevance of the individual details and having post-its or highlights then help me to go back and um be more ready to uh take notes on that. So um being flexible <laughs> depending on the source, I think it shows skill and um, being too strict and rigorous um is maybe helpful in the beginning, but um it's not necessarily a good recommendation to treat every
0: text the same. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, this is just what a question of of morbid curiosity because I was, you know, was talking to my dad from last night. You know, we were I was having to let him know that I was gonna be interviewing you. And when I asked him uh, about completing a PhD thesis, uh, and you know when I mentioned Lumen, you know, completed a PhD in a year, he said that's ludicrous. Nobody can do that. But that's because he's a scientist. So I, I'm curious: is, um, you know, he works in a, a field where there's a lot of experimentation required. Is
2: this viable in any field in terms of the the speed at which you can produce? Um, I'm always a bit
1: hesitant to talk about disciplines i don't know much about
2: um so human as a sociologist uh, was maybe ideally fitted for this system
1: because uh his topic was society so basically everything so <laughs> it's good to have a system that is open to absorb all kinds of information and then Um, seeing for uh, similar structures. Um, But the feedback I receive for the book is um, often in the way of, well, you mentioned only non-fiction writers, but I'm a fiction writer and it it works great for me. Why didn't you include that in the title? Um, Or people... From medicine, especially struggle a lot with information overload. And, uh, I think after all the big promises of AI and IBM, um, didn't pan out the way, at least not, um, um, until recently they really, uh, um, look for a better system and, I hope to um, get people together from similar um, fields of research, and not only research, um, to come up with um, individualized or to adapted versions of it, because I think you need to adapt it a little bit to your own personal needs. And it's good to talk to people from your own field. Um, but the basic principles are probably the same, but you, you see, uh, differences. So I think someone like Joel Chan, who's, um, publishing a lot on, um, how to implement the settled custom properly, he works with a lot of empirical data. I think he has a slightly different approach than I have, who's, more um working with philosophical text and um sociological text. Um so I'm hesitant to recommend it for everyone.
0: But... Yeah, I I totally understand. I mean, like I said, that was one of those sort of, you know, morbid curiosity questions. I, you know, cause I, I thought about that too. I thought, you know, like the but... To be the key here, I think, is to adapt it to your own workflow. Like, that is one thing. And it took me a while to figure that out as well, because I realized, okay, I built this workflow based on the fact that I host a podcast and I read books and I write. Yeah, I, I mean, probably that's the perfect
1: um, application for it. I think people who are broadly curious, um, um, for those, it resonates the most. If you're very in a very detailed, narrow field, um, you might need different tools. But
2: the broader it is, I think, um, the better it works. Wow. Um, well, this has been really uh, eye-opening
0: and thought provoking. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and, and also learn more about that using the Zettelcast? I mean, I have a course called Maximize Your Output, which people can learn about at com. that, you know, is largely based on these ideas, but... Uh, Where can they learn about you and, you know, everything else and then, you know, kind of see this in action? Well, I'm preparing
1: a course myself with basic principles and focusing on the basic principles and using uh, Rome research as a tool and Sotero as a um, literature um, tool and also Obsidian as an alternative to Rome research. Um, hope to get it out, um, this year. Um, there's a new edition coming out
2: of the book soonish. And, um, I'm setting up my,
1: uh, dot com. also soonish. But the best way to stay in contact is to either follow me on Twitter, um, or to, Um, get on the mailing list, um, which I um, use very, very
2: sporadically to announce something new. Excellent. And for everybody listening, let's wrap the show with that.
3: Hold up.
0: Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people to learn more. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, What if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? This isn't a story about tech taking over, it's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The 4Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash 4Keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S, that's unmistakablecreative.com